Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, in the in the beginning, in the beginning, yeah, in the in in, uh, in the listen properly in in the beginning, yeah, in 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 the beginning, in the beginning, in in. All right. Welcome back to a, another edition of Challenging the Traditions of Men podcast. We are joined by the full group with Leith, Steve, and Tom again. I'm your host, Alice. We're going to be continuing our discussion of In the Beginning. However, we're going to be transferring our focus to the second aspect of Rashid. The first aspect, again, was in the beginning where we came to an understanding of it being of a nation or a kingdom or a people, those kind of things. And when we look at those aspects and how it went from Genesis into Revelation, we saw a whole line of understanding appear through the Bible. Now, we're not going to diminish that. We're going to hold that in our minds as we move forward, because just like with words in general, one word can have multiple uses. So before we uh, pass, go into that, we're going to say hello and uh, int not introduce, but just give a moment to say hi and how were the holidays and how are things going? Leith, Steve, Tom, thanks for being here. Good to be here, guys. Yeah, the holidays are over. Um, there's a lot of different traditions everybody has, right? <laughs> but uh, it, it's good to, to buckle back down with you guys, though. So I'm pumped on uh, this this continuation of uh, In the Beginning and Rashid. So super stoked. Thank you, guys. Oh. Yeah, Dallas, looking uh, forward to another Great podcast here. So, yep, just getting back into the swing of things myself. So, looking forward to it as always. Getting the lazy food eaten uh, <laughs> mind out of the way. Uh, okay, so what I'm going to do for us to ease us into this is I've actually presented a just a reminder for what we're doing here. We we've, we've created this picture of Adam who was born into a world where there was other people and they had kingdoms established, boundaries established, covenants were up and running between these different peoples. In fact, there was a land which was known as the land of wandering, of exile, the land of Nod, in which people who did not follow certain ways of this kingdom of Eden were introduced to was kicked out. And this was a kingdom that Adam was put in charge of. So we see some very interesting motifs surrounding this Adam character and where he came to be. And when we took a look into this beginning of Adam, we were introduced to this flood motif, this judgment motif. And when we take a look at it, the flood motif is a judgment language. And now we've got to remind ourselves, like this is coming from the minds of these people of ancient Mesopotamia, the desert nomadic people who grew in, you know, tribal nations, who grew into these kingdoms. 
and they came from this environment where floods did happen they were you know this was part of the natural ecosystem of that area so this motif of flood this language that they would have had to interact with in in nature became part of this description because floods were inherently by how god ordained these actions as destructive and as judgment that would come and you know wash things away do damage so this flood motif language emerged as we took a look into establishing this context in which adam was born into this judgment language is used to describe what the ancient mesopotamian desert people uh, would associate as judgment as acts of god and how that is also mirrored now with God's judgments of how humans had their own interaction. So as we move forward into this, uh, I'm just going to simply ask, is this picture which we're, we, we're looking at and trying to relate ourselves to ancient Mesopotamia, is it drawing ourselves a little bit more of a clear understanding how they interact their language with how they see nature interacting and with that ancient idea how the background is always controlled by gods and we're seeing this language this cultural reflection we still do it today ourselves but i'm just interested do you guys see that type of language now that we've kind of moved into this flood motif is this relatable from a desert type people yeah it seems like uh the once we, now that we're digging into all this that um that kind of language yeah and you're right it is used today it is used today because like even like, you know, we, we hear a lot of Greek mythology in movies and in stories. And it's it's a very universal type of language in that regard. Um, you know, fire, judgment, flood, all that kind of stuff. So it's it's really interesting to kind of dive into that world. And so I'm glad all these points are getting brought up so that we can start understanding um, what f flood means, what, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So but yeah, it does sound like a it does sound like an ancient type way to describe certain things. So that's my take. Yeah, we can see how it would be important to a people of that time period in that language description. And I think it's important because as we've stressed through these uh, conversations, audience relevancy must be, you know, top of mind. And we've got to start to understand that the language is that, like, we still today, you know, like, <laughs> you know, with animal language, we, we still today use it constantly how we interact, you know, men are dogs, uh, women are chicks, you know, it, it's interesting how we still use it, we just don't use it in the similar manner they do. So that's great that this is kind of coming across, because as we develop this, and we've looked at this, where we took Jeremiah, then we also took Eden's judgment, we looked at Noah. Well, I'm going to take some of this language and we're going to develop it just a little bit further from what we've already talked about into the next idea of the second aspect of the word of Rashid. So, for example, in Genesis 1, we get in the beginning of a new covenant people, a kingdom has been flooded, judged by God, being left unformed and void. But God saves a people out from that judged people. He causes a wind to dry up the waters into one place, causing dry land to appear. This land brings forth trees, the first fruits with the seed. 
This isn't controversial. This is pretty straightforward. This is just Genesis day one to day three. Well, what we've done is we saw how that pattern itself wrapped all around Noah and his experience. For we find Eden started with Adam at the right hand of the king. Eden, the covenant people of Adam, were corrupted and judged by God. A new man identified named Noah would become the covenant man and saved out of Adam, out of Eden's destruction. God brought a flood on Eden, destroying everything, making them unformed, and killing all but Noah and his remnant, making Eden void by the flood. Then God caused a wind to bring uh, across the waters and bring dry land so that Noah could leave the boat. Where What did Noah do once he left the ark? He plants a vineyard and begins to enjoy the fruit of the vine of his garden. So it's the same story we see in Genesis of a judgment of a nation and a flood and the results being a people being pulled out of it in which God causes a wind to blow to cause dry land to appear in which these people move on to that land and the land brings forth trees and the first fruits which bring forth seed. Well, when we take a look at Israel, and I hope you guys brought your Bibles today because we're going to be doing some scripture reading. That's what we tend to do here. We're going to take a look at Israel, and we're going to reminisce a little bit with Israel because they have an exact copy to what we've just read, that same building process, as we take a look at the covenant people template of this Genesis motif. For what do we find when we see Israel? Well, Israel started up with Joseph at the right hand of the king of Egypt, just as Adam was put at the right hand of the king of Eden. So we have Joseph at the right hand of the king of Egypt, just as Adam was at the right hand of the king of Eden. The kingdom forgets about Joseph, and Egypt becomes corrupt. And God judges them, just as Adam becomes corrupt and leads Eden astray. Well, then with Joseph, it says a new man becomes identified, and this new man's name is Moses, to become the new covenant people who were saved out of Egypt. And plagues come and destroy Egypt, leaving them unformed, and with the, all the firstborn slain, void a judgment from God. Now, Moses leads this people free, Israel, as out of Egypt. And as they take their freedom and they run, they are, they, they are led to the sea, in which Pharaoh finds opportunity to trap them and attack them. Pharaoh's armies attack, and God causes a wind to move over the waters and divide them so that the new covenant people could pass on dry land, which leads them to the promised land. While God ends up crushing the entire army force in the sea, the entire army of Egypt made void, Egypt's, Egypt's uh, judgment becomes complete. So we see a very powerful pattern here, and something we haven't done, we've already cracked open the motif of the flood motif over Adam, when we looked at the Eden motif with Noah previously, and we took a look and compared that to Genesis 1. What we're going to do is compare this to story to Israel, as I just outlined, by going to Exodus 14. So if you guys want to flip over to Exodus 14, 
we'll take a quick look there as well. So this is, uh, we're going to be catching up to Egypt being judged. We have Moses delivering Egypt, uh, Israel from Egypt. The plagues are over and they've left. They've now moved out and they're heading out towards uh, the Red Sea. That's where they're, they're at. We're chapter 14. We're going to just simply start there. And we're going to catch up to the running away, the fleeing, the freedom of Israel coming out of Egypt. And it's very interesting, this language. So we're going to pay very uh, close language, attention to the language, rather, as this motif of we're now seeing a judgment upon the kingdom of Egypt that was once ruled by Joseph at the right hand of the king, just as Adam ruled at the right hand of the king of Eden, same fall, same judgment, and the same idea of the flood that we saw in Eden, the same flood we see in Genesis 1. Well, what's going to happen to Israel as they are now pushed up against the sea? All right, Exodus chapter 14, and it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Pi-Hiroth between Medigal and the sea. You shall camp in front of them opposite by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, They are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all, through Pharaoh and all of his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people, and they said, What is this that we have done? That we have let the Israel go from serving us. So he made his chariots ready and took his people with him and took 600 select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened all the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. Then the Egyptians chased after them with the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his for, uh, horsemen and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, Egypt, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So great fear has taken over Israel. They're trapped between the sea and their former captors, their slavery. And we get this big picture. And what do we find happen in verse 13 as we continue? But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. And the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. As for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through in the midst of the sea on dry land. 
As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, and I am honored through Pharaoh and his chariots and horsemen. Now the angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from them before them and stood there. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was a cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light by night. Thus the one did not come near the other at night. Now when Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night, the sea turned into dry land. So the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall on them on their right hand and on their left. Then the Egyptians took up their pursuit, and all the Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went after them in the midst of the sea. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariots to swerve, and he made them drive with great difficulty. So the Egyptians said, Let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak, while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. And the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not one remained. Void. But the sons of Israel walked on the dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus says the Lord, who saved Israel that day from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, they believed the Lord and his servant Moses. So when we read that story, the language is absolutely uncompromising in its duplication we see going on with day one. It's very, very powerful in how it uses specific words. So, for instance, when it said that he divided the waters, well, when we read in Genesis day two and day three, what, are we, what do we see there? Well, I'm just going to quickly flip back and give us a quick reading. Because it's very interesting when we take a look at the language. It says, then God said, let there be a firmament. This is uh, Genesis 1-6. Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament separate the waters from the waters. And it was so. And then, right after that, day three begins, and what? And God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And that's exactly what we read when we read in Exodus 14, where God literally 
active in the same motif and that same idea. The author of Exodus is taking the language of Genesis and trying to put it into a literal version by meshing a literal type story with that Genesis 1 language to create the same event. We have a literal picture of walls. So the sea is literally, the waters are literally being divided. So that, as it says, a wind caused the dry land to appear. So the covenant people could walk through and at the exact same time, that same event was finishing a destruction on a nation, making them unformed and void, while the new covenant people are led to safety of the dry land to the new covenant promised land. So before we go any further, I want to uh, just ask your guys' comments. What do we see? Am I making... Uh, too big of an assertion on this pattern that we're seeing in Genesis 1, where we uh, assert that in the beginning is of a new covenant people kingdom, that there has been a flooding, a kingdom has been flooded, judged by God, being left unformed and void, while at the same time Genesis 1 says, and now out of that, God saves a people out of that judgment, people, causes a wind to dry up the waters, causing a dry land, a promised land to appear in order to deliver the people so that fresh fruit, so that the first fruits will appear. What do you guys think so far as we have uh, compared the Eden incident? We've compared the same language that was used by Jeremiah to prophesy the coming destruction of Jerusalem that went through the same language judgment. Now, as we take a look at Israel at its beginning, we see a very interesting, very similar language used to explain the beginning, the Rashid, the in the beginning of Israel. So I'm going to start going around the clock here with Leith because you're the lucky one who got that position. There you go, Steve. You're not first today. <laughs> uh, Leith, what do you think of this motif? Are, are we starting to see something that's obviously real here? Because it seems to be coming through pretty clearly. Yep. A lot of the same terms, Dallas. Um, it just stuck out to me. Exodus 14, verse 21. Waters divided, you know, pulled apart. You know, that's definitely Genesis, like you said. Um, and then in 28, when it talks about, uh, let's see, the, the soldiers or the uh, army went into the sea after them and they were all wiped out and not one of them remained. Now we're seeing that um, void. They were left void with no man. That's uh, very similar to that judgment in Eden, right? Where Genesis yes. seven twenty two all were wiped out. Yeah, keep going. Yeah, and then and then um, then it's making me think of uh, Genesis six with um, Noah's thing, where um, w these waters um, from below and from above were held at bay, but but then they were released. The waters that were below the waters that were above if you think about the river that was separated there was water that was upstream there was water that was downstream that was all being held back so i don't know there's some just awesome parallels super super fun awesome cool so steve what about uh from where you're coming from now we've kind of developed this conversation a little bit we see here at israel's rashid uh does that also when we see coming out of egypt 
do you, I think it's obvious we're seeing the same language, right? This sea, the waters are divided from the waters. There's the dry so that these, this covenant saved people is coming out of a destroyed nation. So obviously the language is there. So are we seeing what you, from your perspective, this is obviously the theme of the Bible. This is context to Genesis, at least day one, two, three. Like, are we starting to get this or are we still in Liberty's territory? How are you taking it? No, I, I think we're right there because while you're reading this, I kept thinking, eh, this can't be the same thing because it's different. Like, you know, he's like parting the sea, I guess, you know, as where there was water before. And I was like, there's no wind here. You know, they talk about the wind that dries it up and then you got to the wind part. And I'm like, okay, wait a second. There's the wind. Okay, well, here we go. It is the same thing. You've got all the elements right here just coming together. Same story again. To be honest, uh, I, I totally understand and I relate to that. That was a big one that got me when it literally said, and God caused the eastern wind to blow and dry out. The, like, I was like, you know, this is obviously to me, now that I'm looking for these elements, the obvious, it, it, and I'm saying obviously because it just seems obvious to me that the Exodus author is duplicating Genesis 1. What do you think, Tom? Well, I, I think Steve just stole my thunder right there. Uh, <laughs> that was, that was exactly, exactly what I was going to point out in uh, Genesis 1 where, where, where we talked about, you know, most translations are saying that the spirit of God was hovering, but but when we look at the the word usage there, it's actually kind of the the wind that that's doing the the separating and the the dividing, and so so we've got that same exact pattern here in uh, Exodus fourteen. So spot on, good job. All right, cool. So we do have a nice little foundation. Now I'm going to point out something here also. Genesis 1 pattern so far. So we have a good idea of day one. We're looking at some of the elements of day two. And we're seeing this interesting uh, new big event coming on day three. Well, now that we have the dry land event taking place, is out of the dry land event, now comes the first fruits. Well, we see that with, uh, obviously, with Adam, with God in uh, Genesis 2, 4, uh, 7, and uh, 8, where Adam is taking the form from the dust of the earth, and then breathe, God breathes into him, and he becomes a living being. So we get the clay man created. We have the dry dust. We have the clay. We have God's warm, moist breath being blown into the dust. We have the potter and we have the clay. We have the beginning of the house of Adam. We have this big event going on. But then immediately after this event, this creation, he's picked up and put into a garden. And the garden's full of the trees with all the fruits that are good for eating. So we see right away with Adam, we get Adam being taken from the dust, Adam be given life, and then be given a garden. Well, when we take that to Eden, well, that's what we see with Noah. And we see that destruction, we see the salvation, and he comes off the ark. And what does he do? The Bible describes it as he becomes a man of the soil. Man of the soil who then what plants a vineyard and enjoys the fruit of the vine, which obviously should remind us of Jesus' statement saying that he will not enjoy the fruit of the vine until he again returns. So 
the fruit of the vine is that same idea of the garden and the fruit. We also see with Israel, what's interesting about Israel is now they are coming into a place where they've been saved, they've been delivered, they've trusted in God now after seeing all these miracles. They now trust God. They now trust Moses for at this great power, they've been saved. They've been delivered, but they have yet to receive the promised land. They have yet to receive and see the first fruits. So that's where we're going to start today. We're going to begin with the second aspect of the word Rashid. For as we know, the first aspect of the word Rashid is that new kingdom people. But the second aspect, when we take a look at it, as many words do, it has multiple uses. And the word Rashid is actually also translated into the word first fruits and first. What is so special about the first fruits? Well, we got to go back to an agricultural assisted, really only living system. We look at a society and today we take for granted so many things like we can just go down to the store and buy groceries. We're talking about a culture where every next generation is determined by the success of the agriculture of this generation. So when we talk about this seasonal system that these people lived by, and we do today still live by these, but we're not in the same position as we were in this time period as a human family because of the differences of technology. So the seasons were very, very important. And that's why a lot of religions base their entire religions around worshiping the seasonal transitions. The Hebrews were not immune to, the, to that Akkadian influence to that Sumerian influence to the Mesopotamian cultural view of the world. They lived the same lifestyle. The season, what's so important about the first fruits? Well, the seasons bring, you know, when it begins, it's now time to plant. Well, what are you going to plant? You have to choose seed. Well, which seed should we pick? Because we, we need to sustain us going forward as a people. This is a very important choice. The seed we pick is going to either make it so we survive or fail. This then must mean we have to be very particular about the seed we choose. We need to pick the hardiest seed that we need. We need the best, strongest, fastest growing, most producing plant we can do. This seed is preserving life for generations, feeding and providing its own seed even for next season. The first plant producing the first fruit, well, the seed is in the fruit. So without that first fruit, without that seed in that fruit, we have no next season. So the first fruit is a reason to celebrate. It's the future. Without that fruit, we have no future. So here we have the seed preserving life for generations, feeding and providing for the next season. In the plant itself, the garden will produce or will not. So what seed should we pick? We save the seed of the first fruit of the season. We save the seed 
we save seed of the first fruits. And this has become a cultural motif of the serious, serious nature of the first fruits and seed succession. All right, guys. So this is what we're going to be talking about today is coming to understand the importance of Rashid and the first fruits to the Mesopotamian people. And what we're going to interestingly find is when we take a look at Hosea 9.10, when we've talked about this uh, scripture before, but the reference is very interesting. So we see him in language, it says, I found Israel in the wilderness in the earliest, with the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its Rashid season, in its first season. Jeremiah 2, 2 through 3, proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth the love of your betrothals, your following after me in the wilderness, through a land not yet sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the Rashid, the first of his harvest. Exodus 4.22, Israel, my firstborn. Okay, so that sets the stage. That's where we're at. And we're now going to pick up and continue from Exodus 14. Moses has taken the firstborn of Israel out of Egypt, and there was a slaughter in the land of Egypt. It was incredible. All the firstborn of the children of Egypt were slaughtered as part of the void judgment. And now... Israel has made it through the, the sea, through the judgment, and they were brought to the dry and are being delivered and brought into and being told about a promised covenant land. And we're going to be on this trip to this covenant land, but we're making a stop in Sinai in Exodus 19. So here we have Moses, who's delivered Israel from Egypt, brought them to the mountain of the Lord. He has gone up the mountain, and he has talked to God, and God has said to Moses, I want to propose to Israel. I want to be their God, and I want them to be my people. So God proposes to Israel. And this is what is said. We're going to read from Exodus 19, verse 4. This is what you shall tell to the house of Israel. And this is what he says. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among for all the people. You shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to me. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people together and set these words before, the, before them, which the Lord had commanded. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And thus begins the covenant between God 
and the people of Israel. So that's exactly what we find happen with Eden and Noah after the salvation. Noah comes off the boat. God provides the dry. God makes covenant, then gives them the fruit. Here we have Israel with Moses. Moses delivers them from the judgment, brings them through the dry. They're made covenant people. And now we're going to learn about the Rashid and the first fruits. And they are referring to, as we're about to find out, acts of covenant, memorial, inaugurational celebration concerning the beginnings of things for the worship and honor of God being instituted as civic duty. All right, so we're going to jump now to Exodus 23. So let's do a quick flip over to Exodus 23 as we creep our way forward into this picture. So here we find in Genesis 23, or Exodus 23 rather, we're going to take our start at verse 16. All right, let's begin. Also, you shall observe the feast of the harvest of the reshit of the first fruits of your labors. From what you sow in the field, also the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in the fruits of your labors from the field. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor the fat or of the meats. Oh, did I go? Nope, keep going here. Uh, to remain overnight. You shall bring the choice first fruits. The, you shall bring the reshit of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. Very interesting. Verse 20. Uh, Behold, I am going to send you to and I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way to bring you into the place which I have prepared. So just like Adam, God prepared a garden, transferred Adam into that garden. Here we have what? Very interesting language. God has taken this people, delivered them out of Egypt, brought them to the sea, judged the nation, delivered the people through the dry, and now makes covenant with them and sets up their first fruits observance with a promise of a coming given land, a coming garden. Very fascinating. Again, same thing happened with Noah. So in verse 16, we see the instituting of the feast of the harvest of the first fruits of the Rashid. Three times a male assembly is held to do this. Verses 18 and 19, to bring the choice Rashid of your soil. Verse 20, because this land is about to be given to you. So we see covenant observance being brought in in the beginning of Israel. In the Rashid of Israel, as we just read in Exodus 19, as the covenant nation. So in the Rashid of the covenant nation, it is inaugurating this covenant with their Rashid of the soil, the first fruits of the soil. So their Rashid is inaugurated by their Rashid. They're in the beginning, 
is inaugurated by their first fruits. So they actually become covenantally bound to remember this as well. As we read three times in this season, these males are going to be held accountable to bring the Rashid, the first of their produce. What's interesting about that is now that they're covenantally bound, this becomes civic duty. This promised lands, this first fruit, this covenantally, uh, it, it's, it's on the land. It's very interesting because you're going to bring this Rashid, this remembrance, this constant uh, remembering and celebration of God bringing you out of Egypt and beginning you, starting you, giving you your Rashid. And that means every season your Rashid is in remembrance and celebration of those things. That's a really big deal, too, considering the curse of the law. If they break the curse of the law, their punishment is to be removed from the land, which removes their in makes them unable or unable rather to bring forth any first fruits. Can't bring first fruits when you're not in the garden. So that brings up a lot of fascinating language there. We get that Genesis 1, the Rashid, in the beginning, God created a people out of destruction from another. Then the new people get a dry land after the water is cleared. And then that dry land becomes fertile with the first fruits. Now, before I move on, I don't want to rush through this. This is a new concept. It's a new idea. I want to know how it's hitting you guys. I, I think it, it it's kind of clear. I don't know if I'm making it difficult or confusing. So uh, let's do a quick comment here to see where you guys are all at with this. We'll go backwards this time. Uh, Tom, how is this stuff sounding to you so far? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's definitely, you know, it's interesting when we're, we're looking at this and we're, we're talking about first fruits, um, you know, typically that's, uh, I, I, I don't know what to say on this one, man, to be honest with you. It's, it's, um, it, you know, I, I know that, uh, I, I thought it was interesting you, you bringing up that it's, it's kind of a civic duty now. And it's kind of like that just had me thinking of, uh, you know, I guess, I guess how, how religions are kind of born. Right. And, uh, it's more of a, a religious uh, duty and it can become something that can be burdensome rather than, than joyful. So I don't, I don't know that that's just what, what hit me as we were kind of, kind of reading through that part. No, that's awesome. That's great because I, it gets you thinking these ideas, right? Seeing these concepts. So I'm glad it's getting you thinking and putting these ideas in your head. Cause I, it's neat to see how, this picture draws itself, and you know I'm going to go to you next here, Steve. And now as we compare this pro progression, this Genesis 1 picture of judgment, a body of good people being taken out, a new starting people, God dividing the waters, God causing the judgment passing through on the dry land. Now we get covenant with these people being made, and we also see the introduction of the first fruit right after the dry just like we see on day three. In the last comment you made, you saw how that parallel of the language in Exodus, uh, where they were leaving, going through the dry land, you couldn't deny that one as well as I can't deny it. 
How are you seeing now that directly leads into Exodus 23 and how that directly follows the dry land into the first fruits? And just so I'm clear here, I know this sounds really stupid, but we're not talking about fruit, right? We're talking about people and doing things and how they act. Am I right on that? Well, before we get into those kind of details, uh, I think what we should do is stay more just true to the, the language they're using. Because when we take a look at that and we say, what does the fruit mean and those kind of things, I think there is a deeper and uh, not a deeper language, but the language gets evolved more. And as we continue our study and we focus specifically in on fruit and trees and seed, I think that stuff will become more clear. But right now we're just looking at trying to get the context and the general flow of it. So, yeah, I, yes, you're right that there's more, but we're just not going there yet. <laughs> okay, I got you. Yeah, I was trying to think like, like, okay, like fruit, like <laughs> Silly. Well, let me say it to you. Who's your seed that produces your fruit? My kids, right? Exactly. So, and that's all that. That's a gen general motif, right? Is uh, we see it throughout all scripture. Jesus is the seed of Abraham, the descendancy of. So we do see that, and we see the offspring being the fruit. So, absolutely, you're right to think there's more to it, and hopefully, you see what I'm saying by. We're more right now just focusing on, do you see the language of how that context continues? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I got you. So, like, I'm trying to think, like, uh, you know, the Garden of Eden and all that. Like, I don't do a lot of gardening, but I assume, if you, <laughs> you know, you have a lot of soil, you know, one year, and then you go to, you move your bed to another bed, and you got to re-soil re it or whatever. You got to put fresh soil. Like, it's kind of like that. Like, we're... He's planting seeds and it's growing. It's kind of, okay, yeah, okay. something along. I, I'm just rattling in my head, but okay, I, I'm following you. I do see the similarity. Okay, cool. I, I'm glad there's a lot of thought coming off of this. This is what's really cool and I'm really enjoying. Uh, Tom, it's neat to see it kind of stumped you and just the ideas and that. And Steve's mind's going. Very, now we're going to you, Leaf. Where are you at with this uh, interesting idea? How are you seeing this? pattern this filling out of genesis 3 introducing first fruits and now we see it with noah getting the first fruits of his vine and interestingly enough israel following the exact same pattern yep same pattern um adam noah and israel so this exodus 23 is kind of blowing me away um verse 16 you shall observe the feast of the harvest of the first fruits. Sorry for the um, sirens, guys, <laughs> in the background. You got about um, two minutes before they show up at your house. No. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I think my neighbor probably called the cops on me for talking like this and talking this kind of language in the backyard. But um, <laughs> so, um, so what makes it exciting is because it was just recently that I was starting to look into what the, the harvest feast is and how these feast days and how that goes into prophecy. So I'm just getting really excited about, you know, that, that harvest feast, that Sukkot or whatever that is and, and the end gathering. And so this, this Rashid study of not only is it, is it representing the beginning of a kingdom, 
but it's also represents this chief thing that we've talked about in previous podcasts. And now you're bringing in this first fruit idea and it's really starting to tie this all together about uh, this beginning and what do new beginnings look like. And so when, when I look at what Christ did and what he, and what God promised to Israel through Christ, I'm looking at this new beginning, this, this harvest gathering, this, uh, uh, end harvest. Um, it's just really, really cool how that's really tying in. Right on. Absolutely. Which is what, uh, for those of you listening who might not be familiar with what Leafs, uh, leading into is as this concept continues forward, we actually see the idea of the harvest of the first fruits moving into Jesus and that becoming, uh, Jesus becoming the first fruits, reaping the harvest of the new uh, covenant church, all these ideas. So, yeah, I, I'm so glad you guys are putting it's not just hearing what I'm saying, but it's sparking lots of ideas. So that's great. We're going to move this forward a little bit more because now we're going to shift the understanding of the Rashid because the Rashid, as we've been discussing, is absolutely talking about the first fruits, the inauguration of covenant of the promised land it's going to bring forth a lot of goodness which is what we have a nation just brought out they have no sustenance they have no future they have no hope in fact god has to feed them by giving them magic food from heaven so they have no sustenance the future for them is the seed in the promised land and this image is given to us in this idea of coming out of judgment, being brought forth, and now what? Now they're going to be made a nation, a kingdom, in the beginning of Israel. And then what do we get in the beginning of Israel? Well, the first season, the first fruits, the first seed, their, their beginning. So every season, they get a new Rashid. So let's move forward to Exodus 34 as we expand the importance of this Rashid. And now we take a, a, another look into this covenantal requirement because as we saw before when th this was brought up, this was brought up with the, this is what you are to do. Well, as this expands in Exodus 34, we're going to read in verse 10, God said, behold, I am going to make a covenant before all your people. I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth nor among any of the nations and all the people among whom live will see the working of the Lord for it is a fearful thing that I'm going to perform with you. Then we read in verse 11. Be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorite before you, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. And this is going to give them, in verse 12, Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. This is God performing these miracles and all these things. And this covenant is based upon him giving them this land. And so we got all this language, heavy language. God, I'm making this covenant. I'm going to clear this land. I'm going to give it to you. Verse 26, what do we read? We jump down and it says, Now you shall bring the very first of the Rashid, 
the very first of the first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. Well, that's very, very interesting. Let's keep reading. We're going to read up to 28. So, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's blood, or mother's milk, rather. Then the Lord said to Moses, write down these words. For in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you, Israel. So he was there. Yeah, and there we go. Now, here's what's also now. Check. He was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, and he did not eat bread or drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the Ten Commandments, the words of the covenant. This is a really big deal because here we have the Ten Commandments being established, the covenant being re, uh, reinstalled, the two tablets are replaced. We have the situation God makes the covenant accompanied by the signs and wonders. God's testimony validating this very contract, the promise of the clearing of the land. And then what? Verse 26, what is their job? They must bring the first fruits, the rashit, into the house of the God. And this is commanded. Moses, write this down. This is the covenant between them. Then we get a description of Moses during the establishment of this covenant. Forty days and forty nights, Moses was doing this with no food or water. And the Ten Commandments are birthed. And the law comes into existence. So this is how important the Rashid, the first fruits are. It is the accompaniment of Israel's covenant. They couldn't have the covenant without the first fruits. This is fascinating because when we read in the New Testament, what do we find? In Luke 22.20, 20, we read Jesus saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus came and established a new covenant, just like in Exodus, God makes a new covenant. What's also interesting is when we read through 1 Corinthians 15, 23, Christ, the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Well, that's pretty fascinating because now we have a covenant with Jesus and Christ also being the first fruits. What's also fascinating is Matthew 4, 1, 2, Jesus led through the wilderness uh, by the Spirit, and he was led through the wilderness for 40 days and for 40 nights with no food or water. We also get a very interesting testimony in the book of Acts in chapter 2. We're going to take a quick look. It says, speaking of... 2.22, speaking of Jesus, it says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Every single element that Moses used to establish the covenant with God, Jesus duplicated to established the new covenant with God. 
the covenant was accompanied with by signs by God validating the contract. We have the first fruits followed by it. We have this 40 days and 40 nights with no water and the birthing of this covenant. We have every element that's going on duplicated. And the first fruits, the reshit, it's extremely important in both, and they are the contingent on both. In fact, in Colossians chapter 1, Jesus is called the reshit, the beginning, the first fruits. So we see no doubt this overlapping for the necessity of first fruits and its importance, its importance rather, to the requirements in the institution and the maintaining of the covenant agreements with God. So now we're going to, let's see here, take another quick look at a, a tweak of the law. We're going to compare with Leviticus this time. So before I get into Leviticus, because that, that was a pretty cool uh, bit of information there where we compare Exodus and the establishment of the covenant and the, the, the needing of the first fruits and how with Jesus that exact system was completely duplicated. If you have any comments about that, definitely feel free as we move forward into Leviticus uh, 23. If anyone wants to just unmic and jump on in. I think when you brought up the in a lot of these verse examples, um, that's like brand new to me how the miracles and signs ties into all of these stories. It was it was required for for to to have these miracles and signs and wonders in order for that the, the to to attract the attention of the people um, to pay attention to the, God's power for one and and be introduced into a new type of covenant so that was really cool to to kind of observe those signs <laughs> <laughs> oh my but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right on right on all right tom steve do you see anything in there you want to comment on do you want to keep going where are we at yeah i'm full speed ahead personally yeah let's rock on man it's all, it's all good all right, cool. Let's keep going to Leviticus 23. We're going to go to verse 9 and read up to, uh, verse 12. So here, very interestingly, as we read, so Leviticus 23, 9 through 12. 9, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I'm going to give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring the sheaf of the reshit, the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, one year old, without defect, as a burnt offering. Wow. Now that really starts stacking with that duplication of the covenant that we just read with Exodus and Jesus. For here we have, when you enter the land, I'm going to give you, I want Rashid. This will make you acceptable before me. Along with the first fruits, however, you still need a male lamb without 
defect. That's fascinating because when we take a look at Jesus, what do we find in 1 Peter 1.18? So 1 Peter 1.18, it says, Well, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, yea, the lamb, the blood of the Christ. John 1.29 says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And 1 Corinthians 15.20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who slept. So here we have that very powerful duplication taking place again in that we have when you enter the land, you shall bring the first fruits and a lamb without defect. Jesus was the lamb without defect and the first fruits. So the duplication is unreal when we want to take a look at the need for the Rashid when it comes to the need of the covenant. So just as much as there's need for blood, there is need for Rashid. So as we continue, uh, I hope that makes a, a bunch of sense here because we see how important Rashid, the beginning, is. And this sacrifice system is now being brought in. And this is all, again, tying back into entering the land. We're going to move forward to Deuteronomy 26, where we're going to take a, a, another quick look. We can speed this one up because now we're starting to get into a little bit of redundancy as we see this is not a hidden concept. It's right straight forward. I'm just going to read 26, 1 through 10, and we're going to just see this is a very well understood thing. We're going to see Rashid in verse 2. We're going to see Rashid in verse 10, both being of the first. So here we go. We're going to read Deuteronomy. 26, 1 through 10. Then it shall be when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, and you possess it and live in it, then you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground which your God, uh, which you bring in from your land which the Lord your God gives you, and you shall put it in the basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name. You shall go to the priest who is at the office at that time and say to him, I declare this day to the Lord my God that I have entered the land which the Lord swore to give to our fathers, gave to us from our fathers. Then the, price, uh, the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean, uh, Armenian, and he went down to Egypt and sojourned there few in number, but there he became a great, mighty, and populous nation. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us and imposed hard labor on us. Then we cried to the Lord and God our, of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction and our toil and oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror and great signs and wonders. And he has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now behold, I have brought the first of the produce of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. 
and you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before God your Lord. You shall bring forth the Rashid and worship before me. The Rashid of the beginning and the Rashid of the first fruits are integral in the making of a covenant people. And it's obviously tied directly to the land. What land? The promised land. Day three, the waters moved off to the side and God caused the dry land to appear and God called it earth. I hope we see the parallels there. We're going to now see one more quick parallel even in the prophets with Ezekiel 20 as we jump forward. Now, depending on, and this is where I'm going to be interested and get you guys' mind primed for it. When we see in the beginning and it's Rashid, what impact does the weight of this covenantal requirement system dependent upon Rashid weigh into our in the beginning discussions? So again, Ezekiel chapter 20. And we're going to be reading verses 33 through 40. So Ezekiel chapter 20, 33 through 40. All right. Okay. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and his and with wrath poured out. Boy, we just read that. I thought, and I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. Oh, we did just read that. So I will enter into judgment with you. I will make you pass under the rod and bring you into the bond of the covenant. And I will purge you from the rebels and those who transgress against me. And I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. As for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, go serve everyone his idols, but later you will surely listen to me and my holy name you will profane no longer with your gifts and your idols. For on my holy mountain, on the high mountain of Israel, there the whole house of Israel, all of them will serve me in the land. There I will accept them and there I will seek your contributions and the Rashid with all your holy things, your first fruits. So, in the beginning of a new nation people, covenantal rituals are established. The Rashid by the Rashid. The in the beginning by the first fruits. This is the beginning pattern of the covenant people template, which we see establish Adam. We see establish Noah. We've now seen a very in-depth establishment of Israel, all according to this covenant template of Genesis 1. So that's going to be the end of our study for this aspect, this first aspect of the uh, 
Rashid First Fruits. After this, we're going to take a quick look at the second aspect. Uh, as when we take a look, we can go into uh, the practical civic duties next week when we will also go into the third aspect of the firstborn. But as far as the first fruits are concerned, um, before we shut down for today, guys, I'd like to get your uh, concepts because this is, again, a new idea. We're going to do a quick review uh, next week, so hopefully you'll give some more thought to it as well. But this is a new idea that's building upon the Rashid we've already went, but obviously this Rashid edition is very, very different. But it's very, very significant. And we must at some point realize they are definitely connected, as we just saw in these multiple examples, especially how Jesus duplicated Israel's beginning as well. So without over-talking this, we're going to go in reverse order this time, and we'll start with Leith. How's the whole concept of this covenant people template role starting to take shape in front of you with the Rashid, the in the beginning, being established by the Rashid first fruits? Um, it's, what, what I think is interesting is that um, in all these cases, there's a, a sacrifice that needs to take place and also a first fruit that's required. I think when you brought up that Jesus was the sacrifice and the first fruit in that example, I thought that was pretty cool. But um, yeah, the, okay, so judgment, there's always, there's in all these cases, there's a judgment. There's a wilderness that's left because of the judgment. But then there's a, a purging. And then there's a, uh, a new land. And then there's a new covenant with contributions and first fruits that's required or sacrifices and first fruits. And then I will be your God and you will serve me. And so, so that picture, all of those elements keep, are being duplicated. Um, it seems and through all of these examples. So thanks for this presentation. This is going to be a lot, to, a lot of good stuff to chew on and to create some cool notes, but, um, thank you. This is, this is a lot of fun. You know, it's always neat that when you're doing uh, biblical conversations, when people thank you for them, as opposed to argue with you. So thank you, Lee, that you're <laughs> considering these and, you know, you, you find it interesting and you're able to you know, go beyond what it is and start to consider these things. So I look forward to, as you said previously in uh, other episodes, that you like to chew on this. So I look forward to maybe next week after you give this some time to see where you're coming from because I think, and now as we move on to Steve, it'll be interesting to see that, yeah, this just seems to be, again, another one of these simple ideas, duplicated simply again and yeah, what's the issue? So I'm going to ask you, Steve, am I putting words into your mouth or does it seem pretty simple to you? Um, no, it seems beyond pretty simple. It's just my mind is getting blown, like seriously, because of my conspiracy mind is just making all these connections and I just don't know where to go with it. But as far as the language, I mean, the the one thing that keeps jumping out at me is this outstretched arm. I keep seeing like Moses had an arched outstretched arm and these last two verses, whatever talk about arched outstretched arms. And it's just like, what's the deal with that? Like there's, there's got to be something to this, but. So the idea of the outstretched arm is the picture of 
now just picture this in your mind. You're a parent and you haven't seen your child and you see them coming. It's been, you know, for as long as you can remember, you look up, you look at the end of the driveway, they're getting out of the cab. They see you, you see them, your arms just go out to grasp at them. That's outstretched arms. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're doing too much now. This is blowing my mind. Like, okay, I get it. Awesome. That's fantastic. <laughs> and that makes sense, right? Like why was God there with an outstretched arm? Why was Moses outstretching his arms? Why was the parable that Jesus talked about the father and the prodigal son? He was willing to, I don't care. I'm just glad you're home. That's that was stretched arm. Absolutely. That's a, I, I find it interesting that you are the one with the least biblical uh, history and you're responding uh, in an emotional kind of response to that. I, that's, you're picking up more on that heart side of it because I think that's uh, a very interesting where you're zoning in on to bring up in comments anyway. I find it interesting because that tends to be more of the heart issue of that to me is more the beauty of this message of God standing there, his heart displayed, wanting to save people from their destruction with outstretched arms. So it's neat that you zoned in on that. I don't want to put all those words into your mouth. So I'll give you a second to, if I'm uh, taking those words in the wrong direction. No, you're exactly right, because I think that's why this Bible all of a sudden is calling to me in a way is like, yeah, there, there is a emotional connection or something. I, you know, I'm not an emotional person, but there's something there. And that that was beautifully said. I mean, I can't speak very well, so you did it perfect. I, I need to play this back for some my wife and stuff so she can hear this. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, that's really cool to hear. I love being involved in the, any type of thing that makes someone feel like they're closer to God. So I just feel honored to be part of that. All right, Tom, It's uh, now we're going to lean on your uh, pharisaical trading background, your stern Baptist son. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, this? Baptist. It's Presbyterian. Man. Oh, sorry, I'm, sorry. I'm, uh, go on, I'm, man. I'm, I'm going to high church, baby. Come on. Okay, just do me a favor. And don't tie me to the stake. <laughs> <laughs> no, I won't, won't burn you at the stake or anything like that. That's yeah. awesome. So, like, where this went, uh, it came out pretty good. Where are you seeing this as far as this pattern? Yeah, so, you know, even the last time that I was uh, going to mention this, you know, where the first fruits are typically uh, always the best, right? Or the, um, the, the choice produce that that's what, that's what God wants um, in, in, in these covenants. Right. Um, so, and those are the requirements. Hey, this is, this is what I want you to bring. And it's funny because we just looking at Ezekiel, which was the last passage there. I saw, um, man, I'm trying to look where are we 20 Ezekiel 20 and like verse, um, where are we verse 40. And I'm going to say 40 B because he says there, I will require that you bring me all your offerings and choice gifts and sacrifices. So, so God is always, um, you know, he's demanding the best. He's wanting the best um, because he deserves the best. And and after each of these, uh, you know, inferences, uh, 
they're they kind of go back to the story. This is this is why God is so good because He delivered us from Egypt. This is you know He He saved us from from the Egyptians. He's He's done these mighty works, and so um, I just kind of relate that uh, to to us today too. You know, I mean that. Uh, you know, I look at Jesus and, and the parable that, that he talks about where the, the parable of the sower, where he's, he's sowing the seed, right? Well, seeds got to got to eventually produce. Um, you know, he talks about some seed falls on the side of the road, doesn't doesn't do anything because the, the soil's not fertile. Um, some seed falls and, uh, you know, it's it's on shallow soil, so it springs up real quick, but then it it gets burned away with the heat of the day. And then the other soil falls and amongst thorns and thistles and it gets choked out. So there's all these pictures all throughout scripture. Um, you know, so this these first fruits and the seed and, and Jesus says, you know, the the seed that that falls on that fertile soil and it springs up and it's got a deep root. Um, you know, it takes root and it takes hold. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what I'm looking at and seeing, yeah, you know, this is, uh, this is God working in his people and producing that type of seed and that type of, uh, fertile soil. If we want to allow him to do those things. And, uh, so yeah, so, so those are just, you know, again, I, I'm kind of, looking at it from a pastoral background and, um, you know, God is good and he's faithful. And that's what we're going to see with these covenants that he has made, um, you know, with, with Adam and with Noah and with, uh, Abraham. And I mean, here, here we are, we're talking about Israel. Well, you know, it, it brings me back to Abraham and, and, you know, God saying, Hey, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And, um, you know, so so here we are in Ezekiel, and and yeah, there's he's made them into a great nation. He's brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, and um, so yeah, that's that's just so cool to me. So this whole first fruits and you know the resheath, it's just uh, everything's just it's all coming together, and uh, that that's the pattern all throughout Scripture. And I think uh, it's really important how you were using that language because it brings in the understanding why it is very useful to use that language of the garden because anyone from the beginning to the, you know, forever of time, you know, from the forever to the forever, the everlasting to the everlasting, we all grow food. It's an example that will never age because in the end of the day, we still always have to do the same things to survive. So it's a, it, it's a language and it's an act that we will always understand if we can keep it simple, I think. So it's very interesting how the language you chose to use, I think, was really good at telling that. Now, before I close down to end this study, we're simply going to answer the question, why, why did God need sacrifices of the first fruits? Like, God doesn't have a mouth to eat it. 
So this brings up to the end of the, the understanding of the first fruits. This is the practical. This is the civic duties. So we're just going to do a quick uh, Deuteronomy 18, 1 through 5, where it says, Now the Levitical priests, the whole tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's offerings by fire and his portion. They shall have no inheritance among their countrymen. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. Now this shall be the priests due from the people. For those who offer a sacrifice, either an ox or a sheep or what they get, whatever they give to the priest, the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach, you shall give him the first fruits of your grain, your new wine, and your oil, and the first shearings of your sheep. Twice those are described as uh, reshit. You shall give him the reshit fruits of your grain and your oil and the reshit shearing of your sheep. For the Lord your God has chosen him and his sons from all your tribes and to stand and serve in the name of the Lord forever. So the very practical application of all this sacrifice of the first fruits is to feed the priesthood, to give them clothing, to give them money, to give them food, to give them a paycheck for the service they do to the Lord. If you want to expand that and take a look at it, for those of you listening, you can go to Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 44, where it says specifically the first fruits, referring to the practical civil duties that we just read. Ezekiel 44, verses 28 through 30, can uh, completely duplicate what we just finished reading in its explanation at that time, talking about the first fruits, civil duties, and the practices in order to feed the priesthood who ran the house of God. So when we come to the end of this study, we can see that the word Rashid does have a couple different meanings and expected meanings from this culture. Not, you know, to just avoid it from its natural definition, but rather to take a look at the, how the Bible uses the words themselves. So the first aspect we came across was in Rashid was in the beginning, in the beginning of a people, a nation kingdom, or the reign of another, or the first fruits as we read tonight and came to see covenantal requirements and civic duties. Next week, we're going to get together. We're going to come upon the third and final aspect of the word Rashid. We're going to be taking a look at the firstborn, the future strength and might, the continuance of the progeny, the generational succession. We already see aspects of that in the beginning of the beginning of a new kingdom. We already see aspects of that in the first fruits. Now we're going to take a look at it in the firstborn. Uh, I brought up a little bit of extra information there. We've covered a lot today. Uh, we pushed the time a little bit to 122, so we're going to be shutting it down now, guys. I will offer one last opportunity to give any closing thoughts on this. We are uh, going to move on forward to the next aspect next week. So any final thoughts, guys? If not, I'm going to be closing her down. No, we're good, brother. I'm good. Yep. See you guys next week. All right, so it sounds good. I, again, want to appreciate the panel and all you guys for listening. I hope this comes through and you do a little bit of digging to come to help you understand, ourselves understand the Bible better, so that when we come to read the Bible, we can come to understand what it presents, because at the end of the day, 
We're trying to understand this world we're living in. We're trying to love and honor God. And we're trying to do so with our integrity and authenticity and just try to be real. So I want to thank you for taking your time. Thanks, guys. We want to thank you from the podcast where we challenge the traditions of men wherever you are. We hope you find this well. God bless.